I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from Southern Indiana. My name is Alan Bishop, and we are at Spirits of French Lick Distillery in West Baden, Indiana. How far from Big City? See, maybe an hour and ten minutes from Louisville, about two hours from Indy, somewhere in there. So you're day tripable from a lot of different places. Absolutely, we hope yeah. to be anyway. So. <laughs> So are you fairly new operation? So we started in 2016 is when we started distillation operations. And, uh, of course, we're tied to a family-owned winery. Uh, and that, I think they started that in 95. So, mm-hmm. yeah, overall fairly new. So so you're like a sub-entity under the parent umbrella of yep. the winery. Yeah, they, they basically they cash flowed the distillery out of the winery is what they did. And it mm-hmm. worked really well. And it's a, it's a business model that I see working well for, you know, wineries and breweries to add a distillery. So Is there a, a brewery under this? Unfortunately, we have that uh, that weird three-way law in Indiana where uh, you can't have all three. But, I did uh, not know that. Yeah. So you're really, you're a brewer that doesn't know when to quit. Yeah. Because that's really wh- how you start, yeah. right? Well, that's a joke I always make about whiskey. You know, or you know what beer is. Beer is just uh, whiskey didn't live up to its potential. Exactly. <laughs> didn't go the next step. Yeah, but you go the whole step. We do. Yeah. We do. How did you get the bug? You know, what got you? Yeah, so I, I grew up in it. I had a, a family that all came from Kentucky. And, of course, there's a long distillation history here in Indiana, too. But I had so a family. So bootlegging was yeah. in your moonshining, family. Moonshining, moonshining yep. and tobacco farming. That was that was how we, we paid for everything. Mm-hmm. So. So you understood it as a kid. I mean, you grew up with it. Yeah, I was I was around stills when I was like three years old. To me, they were like a it was like a tractor. It's another reason why <laughs> we can't go do something fun on Saturday, right? And mm-hmm. then when I was about fifteen, then I got tangentially interested, and my grandpa and dad helped me build a little ten gallon. And they said, "Don't blow yourself up in the backyard and bring us something that's worth drinking." So that's so cool. So how did you go to the second level? Uh, I got a little too big for my britches in my 20s, and uh, my now wife said, you better go get a job doing this. Mm-hmm. And so I just I made the worst resume that anyone's ever seen, and I <laughs> took it to every distillery that was opening until somebody finally said yes. Cool. And <laughs> were you cellar rat starting out, and what did you do? No, they, they hired me on full-time as a distiller oh, wow. uh, at a distillery in Louisville, Kentucky, making brandy. Honestly, I was the only person in the building that had any, any real hands-on distillation equipment. But, you know, when you go for from a 150 gallon up to here's a thousand gallon and a 750 gallon and a steam boiler you know you either learn quick or something goes really wrong fast what were some of the cool things that you did learn obviously learning about the boiler i don't know if i'd call that cool but that was part of it learning how to scale stuff up right because that's scary Mm -hmm. when you've only ever done say you know doing an absinthe or botanical spirit on a 10 gallon right because you couldn't afford to do it on 150 at home but then you got to scale it up to a 750 gallon. It's like throwing darts at a dartboard when you scale it up. If you're even touching the dartboard, you're, <laughs> you're doing okay. You're doing good. <laughs> That's funny. So you obviously had some successes. You wound up opening your basically your own operation. Yeah, and and I don't own anything here. I'm mm-hmm. I just uh, just a head distiller. I call myself head alchemist because I say if you're going to be pretentious, go all the way, right? But well, uh, it's kind of there's a benefit I think in a way in that it allows you to stay focused it does. on what you're good at. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and and that was the thing, you know, being in Louisville, I wanted I want to get back over here to what I call the right side of the river, and the main reason <laughs> for that is because I knew the history here. I saw this as an opportunity. Hey, I know the history and I know how that stuff was made. Let's get into Indiana and bring back the distilling history of Southern Indiana. Let's go back in time in Indiana, 1820s on. Mm-hmm. 
what did they make and how did they make it? So apple and peach brandy were always huge because most of the settlers here were from the Black Forest region of Germany. Mm -hmm. It was almost always double pot distilled. You do see some what they called patent stills, steam stills and stuff like that. Um, but pretty basic, you know, old school technology, just like you'd see in Scotland or cognac, etc. Very much this, uh, this idea of represent the fruit as best as what you can. One of the things that a lot of people don't know is that most of the distillers were preacher distillers. Oh, interesting. And that's how a lot of the churches here were paid for. Mm -hmm. and they were Campbellite preachers, and they traveled from town to town, and they figured out quickly that liquor was part of the culture, and if they could produce the liquor, they could make money for churches, and they could cut the people off that needed to be cut off. That's real interesting. There's a Jack Daniels. The mm -hmm. origins of Jack was a preacher who taught this guy who yeah. taught Jack. Yeah. Dan yeah. Call, Nearest Green, Jack Daniels. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. That's yep. so trippy. The other dynamic, going back in time, people don't talk about, but you well know, is one of the reasons why you drank whiskey is because if you drank the water, you died. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, people don't think about this either, but alcohol, whether it be whiskey, brandy, whatever base alcohol you're making, it was a hard scrabble life. Wherever you were in the 1800s, all the way, well, I mean, even now, it's things are still not always easy, but not like it was then. You know, you had to have something that you could dissolve different types of botanicals into for different medicinal uses, etc. Mm -hmm. And even if you didn't have that, you had to have something that would just kind of take the edge off of your day. So it really was a pharmacopoeia. It, it really was medicine. Mm -hmm. It was it was your pharmacy. It was the best yeah. hope you had. Well, and around here, if you you go back into the history books, until the late 1840s. It was considered rude not to have a bottle of whiskey on your table. If you're having a neighbor over to help with mm -hmm. a smell, with a, a corn shucking bee or putting up a building, you better have whiskey on that table. Mm -hmm. It was just part of it. But it literally was one of the four food groups in that sense. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Yep. And again, to reiterate, you couldn't drink the water. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Well, and that, that brings up another interesting point, too. You know, people don't think about, but distilling is inherently an agricultural pursuit, mm -hmm. right? And we live in a day of commodities. But, you know, there's a little different different back then. You know, it was it was it was still kind of commodity stuff, but not like we do it now, mm -hmm. right? It was a labor of love, but it was also a way to preserve your harvest and very much so related to your farm and what you could grow or what you could get locally. And that being said, to this day, you rely on raw ag ingredients, apples, for example. Mm -hmm. Could give us some other examples of the raw. Yeah, agricultural so, products. Obviously, corn is a big thing, and and for years Indiana was sending you know its corn into Kentucky to make bourbon. So why shouldn't we just make it here to some degree? And we're happy to have Kentucky's business. Don't get me wrong. And like you said, you're right across the border. Yeah. So from a terroir standpoint, yeah, everything. No. They always joke that it's the uh, it's the wrong side of the Magic River, right? As though everyone in Kentucky got to the southern bank, they looked across at the northern so the part of the, at the northern side of the river, mm -hmm. and they said, "I don't know what's over there, but I'm not going." <laughs> <laughs> but rye as well, wheat, barley, etc. You know, we try to get uh, as much stuff locally as we can. We try to grow as much as we can. You know, we can't we can't grow all of it. Mm -hmm. But we do try to grow about 30 acres of corn. We have a very genetically diverse open pollinated corn that we grow. We grow about 30 acres of wheat every year. We do buy from a local maltster, uh, at least somewhat local. He's up in, in uh, around Indianapolis, Indiana. Mm -hmm. and Within the state. Yep. And yeah. family owned and, you know, mm -hmm. doing it all on his dad's farm. So That's really cool. Okay, so another area that fascinates me in your world, it's a nuance, but it makes a game changer in flavor profile and that's the world of yeast mm -hmm. talk to us about that 
Yeah, so uh, the first the first thing I'll say is that you know a lot of a lot of commodity distillers they'll tell you that the the yeast doesn't matter. They'll tell you the grain doesn't matter. You know, corn is corn, right? <laughs> yeast is right. yeast, and I am not a believer in that at all. So I've been interested in yeast for a very very long time. You know, growing up it was obviously you know bread yeast. That's sure. what you use. Well, you talked about the history of Fleischmanns. Yeah, mention that for a moment. That's yeah. fascinating. So they were they were distillers before they ever got into the yeast business. So you know, there's there's nothing wrong with I see home distillers say all the time, oh, you shouldn't use Fleischmanns for mm-hmm. You know, just like, why wouldn't you? Right. It makes good bread. It's going to, you know, bread and whiskey are not that far off. It's going to make good whiskey. As long as it finishes the fermentation, it tastes good. Run with it. But I'm interested in yeast in the same way that I was interested in uh, heirloom grains, right? Nobody was talking heirloom grains and whiskey, you know, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. But, again, distilling is inherently agricultural. So if you have all these odd corns, you have all these odd ryes, these heirloom corns, this is all tied to the local war movement, et cetera. Why wouldn't you see what they do in a whiskey? The same thing with the yeast, right? We all want to talk about what pre-prohibition whiskey was like, and we'll talk about everything else except for the yeast strain. <laughs> you know, So I've made it a point here in southern Indiana in what we call the Black Forest region of southern Indiana to go to some of these old distilleries that were out there and try to propagate yeast from the existing equipment that's still out there. Wow, and so you're scraping the walls. Yeah, we're, we're, we're scraping the walls. We're setting, you know, yeast traps. I'm I'm geeky, <laughs> man. I got a refrigerator full of yeast at home, and my wife is about tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> she needs to buy your refrigerator on the garage. Oh, well, here's the problem. So I've got I've got one in the basement, and uh-huh. it's full already, and then I have to have backup samples in everybody else's refrigerator. Right, right. I love it. A little deeper on how you can manipulate and tweak the flavor profile just through the yeast. It's through the yeast itself, yeah. yeah. So the the main thing is that you're going to have different yeasts that are intended maybe for different things, but I'll give you a couple examples. So Fleischmann's, for example, is really good at pulling out those bread sort of aromas, those grain mm-hmm. aromas, those big fresh baked bread aromas. If you switch out to, say, a brandy yeast, a commercial brandy yeast, and it may not be as well attenuated uh, as some of the other yeasts are for whiskey, but now you're able to pull out these fruity esters, these fruity profiles that you might not ordinarily get in whiskey. Another one that I love playing with, and it's actually multiple strains, but it's called Kvike. And I'm probably not saying that right because my mm-hmm. Hoosier accent comes through. Right, right. But Kvike is an old Norwegian or Scandinavian farm brewer's yeast. Uh-huh. And they would actually propagate this yeast with their beer and their, um, I'm trying to think of the word for it, where they were doing their malt kilning. So it would get really hot in there. It'd be 110 degrees. So this yeast will operate at 110 degrees. Wow. It'll knock out a fermentation and 24 hours and it's fruity and it's funky and it's like Mm -hmm. strawberry and guava and all these odd characteristics that you would never get from anything else or one of the yeast strains that we pulled from here in indiana from spring mill it gives a uh, ceylon cinnamon very heavy cinnamon toast crunch aroma that you can't get from any other yeast out there so with that palette that you operate from you can anticipate and be pretty confident what you're going to wind up with four years later absolutely that's absolutely and it, it's it's i call them flavor bridges so you mm-hmm. look at things um that's a good one <laughs> so it's only a case right right welcome to the distillery <laughs> so yeah you look at things like flavor bridges for example mm-hmm. so if you were doing a botanical spirit if you wanted a cinnamon flavor to it you might take both cinnamon and ceylon cinnamon and add a little bit of cayenne pepper wow so if you start thinking about all right you have a yeast that already gives you some ceylon cinnamon mm-hmm. and you have a grain bill that has some spiciness to it and but also has some sweetness from some oats or from some wheat mm-hmm. well now you can produce a snickerdoodle cookie in a bottle right That's incredible. <laughs> so and now talk about corn for a moment hmm? 
Yes, so corn is obviously the basis of bourbon, and bourbon, a lot of people don't realize it, but it, at base, bourbon is a corn whiskey. Mm -hmm. That's its primary component. It has to be 51% corn. And we're just now at a point, luckily, where there are other distillers talking about the diversity of corn, and that's important, A, from a genetic diversity standpoint, but also, B, from a flavor perspective. So you look at all these different colored corns, and are they pretty? Yeah. Do they have interesting histories and stories? Yeah. That's all marketable stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But those colors are long chain amino acids, and they're both—they're uh, either going to be water soluble or fat soluble. So in pot still distillation, their aromatic precursors are going to come across. You're going to get these unique aromas, these unique flavors that are more phenolic in nature. So you'll get things like uh, an aromatic precursor from anthocyanin, which is almost like the um, the flavor that you would get from like a blackberry seed, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That comes through, kind of black cherry, etc cartonoids which are very dark orange you know we've got a, a corn in particular that's almost the color of a pumpkin those tend to come off super buttery super round they make the best grits in the world if they make good grits they're going to make good whiskey everything mm -hmm. i do is basically me just taking food and making it into whiskey so. well that being said at the end you have your whiskey but then for that to properly showcase show itself off you need to pair it with food Absolutely. Right. Yes. So it would follow that you would do some, like, tasting dinners. Absolutely. And it, it, again, is a matter of finding those interesting contrasts, right? Flavor is about contrast as much as anything else. So, you know, you guys had a, um, a whiskey here earlier today that we, we call the Morning Glory, and it has this weird Reese's Pieces peanut butter chocolate thing and it's almost literally you could classify it as a dessert whiskey right <laughs> it could literally be in place of a dessert or maybe you serve it with some even some ice cream right that's the stuff that makes life worth living is being able to do stuff like that so and your label name is uh spirits of french lick that is the distillery name and then all the various labels are um, uh, named after different historic places here in southern indiana and outside of the Midwest, could somebody order your whiskey online? Yeah, so um, sealbox.com, I think, ships to 33 states, roughly. Mm -hmm. We're looking at a couple of other online retailers, and we're hoping, hoping that in the next few couple of years, Indiana is going to open up shipping. Recently, Kentucky did that. I think Indiana seeing that they're missing out on some revenue, and that's the important part, is get them <laughs> to recognize the revenue they're missing out on. Temptation. Yes, exactly, exactly. To learn more about your world... Yep. So you can find me at uh, spiritsoffrenchlick.com and then also thealchemistcabinet.com, which is where I do a lot of writing about whiskey history here in Indiana, etc. I do a lot of consulting work, things of that nature. And I heard you're a podcaster. I am. I am. So I run a Distillers Talk podcast, which you can find on any any podcast platform. Um, not the best audio quality in the world, but we're working on that. <laughs> there you go. And uh, if you have Ghost, you have everything podcast, which is very much a, a paranormal sort of leaning, somewhat tying whiskey and mm -hmm. distillation into the spiritual world. So Love it. My name is Alan Bishop. I'm head distiller at Spirits of French Lake. Alan, thank you so much. What a wonderful morning, man. Absolutely. Been great. Thank you, man. You're welcome. Appreciate it. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from Southern Indiana. We'll see you here. You've been listening to the Lowell Thomas award-winning travel show, Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer, a featured podcast on NPR.org's podcast directory. You are invited to subscribe to Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer on NPR.org, 
iTunes, and more than 20 other podcast channels around the world. To learn more about Tom Wilmer's journeys around America and the world, log on to thomaswilmer.com. This is Roseanne Cash, and I'm sitting here with Tom Wilmer. Please support your local NPR station. I listen to WNYC in New York. In fact, NPR is all I listen to. If I didn't have NPR, I would feel like my lifeline to the world has been cut. So, yes, please support your local NPR station. World Bicycle Relief partners with communities to deliver specially designed, locally assembled, rugged bicycles for people in need. Nearly one billion people in rural regions of the world live in communities far from the nearest paved road, walking miles every day just to survive. Distance is a barrier to attending school, receiving health care, delivering goods to market, and other critical services needed to thrive. Find out how you can help deliver rugged, dependable, life-changing bicycles to deserving communities. Log on to worldbicyclerelief.org to learn more.